Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, do please keep that open. Well, here we are, New Year's Eve, another year about to begin. How do you feel about 2024? Are you excited? Are you worried? Many people are very, very anxious about the year ahead, and with good reason. Climate anxiety is on the rise, so the increase in wildfires, floods, droughts are some of the very visible signs of climate change. What is less visible but equally real is the effect on people's minds. So people are getting very worried. Apparently Google searches about climate anxiety are 27 times higher in 2023 than they were in 2017. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been described as more dangerous than anything Europe has seen since the end of World War II. And there are real fears, aren't there, about the conflict in the Middle East spilling over into a regional war, and even a showdown between the superpowers. Some have warned that the world is drifting into one of the most dangerous periods in human history. And the advances in AI have led to increased fears that it could threaten humanity, and it could lead to civilization destruction. Everything so unstable, so uncertain, feels like the world's going up in flames. And that's before we even get to our own personal lives. I mean, who knows what the year ahead holds for us personally, at work, in our health, with our loved ones. As we begin a new year, in an uncertain, unstable world, we may well find ourselves longing for some certainty and stability. And that is exactly what we find in the passage I just read in Romans 8, 28 to 39. So here is solid ground under our feet. Here is a rock on which we can stand and which we can build. Here is certainty, here is stability. So verse 28, it begins, we know. And then in verse 38, Paul says, I am sure. First century world was unstable, as uncertain as ours, as was the Apostle Paul's life. 
But what we have in this passage is a celebration of certainty. Wonderful passage, sort of brimming over with confidence. If we are in Christ, we can join in this this celebration this New Year's Eve. And if we're not in Christ, this certainty could be yours too. So far in Romans, uh, Paul has been explaining the bad news that we are by nature under God's judgment because of our sin. And then the good news, that if we trust in Jesus and his death for us, we are reconciled to God, we're set free from slavery to sin, to live a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we have this celebration of certainty. It's in three parts. Three things we know as believers are three things that aren't going to change if we are in Christ, whatever 2024 may bring, and they're in the, inside your service sheets on the outline there. Firstly, nothing can stop God's good purpose for us. So if you look back in verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If we are God's people, we can know for certain that all things work together for good, for our good. Or you could translate it, God works in all things for good. In all things, it says. So in all the circumstances of our lives, in everything that happens, God is at work for our good. That was true in 2023. It will be true in 2024. In all things, even the disappointments, even the setbacks, even the tragedies, God is at work for our good, is what it says. But what is this good that God is working for in all things? So what is his good purpose? Well, verse 29 tells us. It says it is to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's good purpose is that we become like his son, Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is, as verse 29 says, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, what does that mean? Well, firstly, in the future. God's good purpose is that in his eternal world, it will be populated by many brothers and sisters of Jesus. So people whom God has transformed to be like Jesus in resurrection bodies and in sinless character. Another way of putting this is that we will be glorified. That's the end goal in verse 30. The passage just before this has been about this eternal future to which we look forward. So verse 23, if you look at that, says, we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that is God's good purpose for us, and he is at work in all things to get us there. That's future. And secondly, already in the present, God is hard at work to conform us to the image of his Son. So he's not leaving all the transformation to the age to come. He's not saying, all that matters is that you're forgiven. That's all that matters now. No, the transformation work has begun, even now, to make us more like his Son. In character, Christ-like, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. So Ephesians 4.24 says that we are now to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in in true righteousness and holiness. So God's good purpose for us is transformation. 
that we become like Jesus, conformed to the image of God's Son. And God is at work in all things for this good purpose, to make us like his Son in eternity and to begin that process of transformation in the present, in this life now. So people ask questions like, you know, what is God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Does he want me to do this job or that job? Does he want me to go to this university or that one? Does he want me to live here or there? Does he want me to get married or not? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Not ultimately. His will is that we become like his son. And he is at work in all things to that glorious end. So whether we are a CEO or a cleaner, whether we're living on the Isle of Dogs or the Isle of Man, doesn't matter. This is God's focus. Now notice what God's good purpose isn't. His purpose isn't that we have a happy, comfortable, easy life now. And if that is what I'm expecting, that God is going to deliver sooner or later, I'm going to end up disillusioned. God's good purpose, it says here, is that I'm conformed to the image of his Son. And he can work even through hard times and difficulties and disappointments and pressures and even evil things that people do to that good end. Now, we need to be careful here because if I am suffering a lot, if I'm suffering a lot, I might conclude I must be really, really sinful if God has to go through to these lengths to make me more like Jesus. But nowhere does the Bible say that. And in fact, the experience of Job and of Jesus flatly contradicts that. The point is simply that in all things, even difficult things, God is at work for his good purpose to make us more like his son. Now, nothing can stop him achieving this. He's going to see this process through from start to finish in my life, in your life. The process actually started a long time before we may think. In fact, the process started before we were even born. What we have in verses 29 and 30 is a chain, it's a golden chain, an unbreakable chain, which gives us huge assurance. Let me read it again, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is deep, deep stuff, isn't it, where we're swimming pretty quickly out of our depth. But there are basically five stages. It begins with God foreknowing. Those, it says in verse 29, whom he foreknew. Foreknow does not just mean God knew beforehand who would believe in him. Knowing in the Bible is about relationship. So Amos 3.2 says, God says to his people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So he knew them in the sense that he'd set his love on them and chosen them. And so with us as New Testament believers. So foreknew, second predestined, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined means decide upon beforehand. So Ephesians 1.4 says of believers that God, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, it says he predestined us for adoption. 
So foreknew, predestined, third, called. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. This call is a powerful summons from God, which results in a person turning to him in repentance and faith. So through the gospel, God powerfully calls people to himself. So 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Fourth, justified, verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. So those God calls to himself, he then justifies, which means he declares them to be righteous in his sight because of Christ's death for them. And finally, number five, glorified, verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, glorified refers to the final stage of the uh, state of the believer in eternity, like Christ, but it's so certain that it's spoken of here in the past tense, as if it's already happened. It's a done deal. How does someone become a Christian? How does somebody become a Christian? From our perspective, we hear the good news about Jesus, and we decide to turn to God in repentance and faith in Christ. We choose to follow Christ. But from God's side, this is telling us, from God's side, He has chosen us long before we chose Him. And that gives us assurance. It gives us certainty. God will complete the good work He's begun in us. A female sea turtle lays hundreds of eggs on the beach, in the sand, and then does a runner and leaves them to fend for themselves. And the battle for survival begins. Of hundreds of eggs that are laid, only four or five make it through to being an adult turtle. Is it like that as Christians? Is it like that as Christians? Are we born again on the beach and left to fend for ourselves in a battle for survival against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Thankfully not. This is saying that we are safe in God's hands and he will fulfill his purpose for us. Now, sometimes people object to this, and they say, well, if you tell people this, if you tell people it's a done deal, they'll just think they can live as they want, and they'll think it doesn't matter what you do. Now, that might sound logical, but it's unbiblical. So the Bible urges God's elect, so God's chosen, the Bible urges us to make every effort to grow in godliness, to continue in the faith, to abide in God's love, to live out our faith in practice. And it warns us against drifting away. It warns us against falling away. And if we do fall away from Christ, it shows that we were never actually truly God's people in the first place. Actually, the certainty, the certainty sets us free to enjoy a healthy relationship with God. So if I think back to when Leah and I were going out many years ago, it was actually quite a stressful time. Partly because we're living in different countries, but partly because of the uncertainty. You're thinking, is this relationship going to last or is it not going to last? Once you get married, it gave us certainty. To think, well, for some strange, inexplicable reason, she's chosen me. 
and I know she'll stick with me. And that certainty, that stability, it doesn't mean I now say, well, great, doesn't matter how I treat her, I can just live as I want. Rather, it just makes for a more stable, enjoyable relationship. Same with God. So in an uncertain world, we can celebrate the certainty we have in Christ. God will fulfill his purpose for us. That's our first certainty. Nothing can stop God's good purpose for us. The second one is if God is for us, no one can condemn us. The issue in these next verses, verses 31 to 34, is this. How can I be sure that on the day of judgment, I really am going to be acquitted and not condemned? How can I be sure? How can I really know that for certain now? And the answer here is that we can be sure because God is for us. We were singing about that a bit earlier. God is for us. The phrase comes up three times in these verses. So look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible tells us that by nature in our sin, in our sin God is against us. He's rightly angry with us. But if we're in Christ, through faith in him, God is for us. How do we know he's really for us? Well, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave his own son for us. What greater proof could God give us of his commitment to us? That's how much he is for us. Now, having done that, having given Jesus for us, he's not going to now abandon us. He's not going to suddenly sort of change his mind and turn against us on the day of judgment. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you might say, well, lots of people. Lots of people could be against us, but the point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If God is for us, it is his verdict that counts. So verse 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. So imagine, uh, silly scenario, but imagine you were on trial at the Old Bailey and you were accused of murder. If at the end of the trial, the verdict of the judge on you is not guilty, that's the verdict that counts. And if when you leave the courtroom, some drunk on the street outside sort of pushes you and says... I think you did it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't ultimately matter. The judge has declared you innocent. And it's his verdict that counts. And so this is saying, if we're in Christ, we are, we have been justified. We've been declared in the right. In the highest court, not just the highest court in the land, but in the world, in the universe, in the supremest of supreme courts, by someone higher than the highest of high court judges, the judge of all. Now, we might feel, yes, but. Yes, but. You know, it, it's all a bit dodgy, isn't it? I mean, it's very kind of the judge, but the fact is I am actually guilty. I should be condemned. I am a sinner. But it's actually all above board because of Christ. So it's what God has done in Christ that means it's not some dodgy deal which might unravel and get overturned. So verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see that? It's not a dodgy deal at all. Christ died for us, for our sins. He paid for them on the cross. Christ was raised, showing that God the Father accepted his payment for sin. A bit like the receipt coming out of the card machine, proving that the payment's gone through. And it says he's now interceding for us. So Jesus is in heaven itself, in the heavenly courtroom, as our advocate, representing us. And so the point is, we've got nothing at all to worry about. The judge is God the Father, and he is for us. He's given us his own son to die in our place to pay for our sins. He's now raised him from death to life to represent us. And in fact, the verdict of the end time court has already been declared, acquitted justified. So the question there is, who is to condemn? Well, the devil might have a go. I mean, his name, the devil's name in Greek, diabolos, means the accuser. And you know what it's like when you mess up? The devil starts whispering to us, doesn't he? Call yourself a Christian. God must be very disappointed with you. But we can respond, no, God has justified me in Christ. The accuser has been thrown out of the courtroom. Other people might have a go at condemning us. Sometimes when we mess up, other people can make us feel pretty useless, feel condemned, or maybe other people reject us because we are Christian. But we can say to ourselves, God has justified me in Christ, and if I've got his verdict, his approval, his acceptance, that's what matters. And sometimes we have a pretty good go at condemning ourselves, don't we? So it's not necessarily the devil or other people condemning us. It's us. We're our own worst enemy. So when we mess up, we maybe condemn ourselves. And we feel we're useless. And sometimes as Christians, we get very, very down on ourselves. But we need to go back to the certainty in these verses. God is for me. It is God who has justified me in Christ. And so as Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So in this uncertain world, what do we know for sure? First, nothing can stop God's good purpose for us. Second, no one can condemn us if God is for us. And thirdly and lastly, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. That is the big idea in the final verses, verses 35 to 39. So it's how this section begins and ends. So it begins, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It ends in verse 39 by affirming that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a kid, did you ever play that game where um, with daisies, you get a daisy, you pick off the petals and you say, loves me, loves me not, and you see which note you end on. Just me then. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, we didn't have smartphones and PS4s. We just sort of sat in daisy fields and we made up games and so on. But anyway, the point is, it's not like that with God. We know that he, that he loves us if we trust in Christ. He loves us so much, he sent Jesus to die for us. And so now we can say confidently with, with Paul, Galatians 2.20, he says, the Son of God loved me. And he gave himself for me. We think, well, that's now. What about the future? 
You know, life can throw a lot of stuff at us. Who knows what this next year will hold? Never mind the next 30 years. Plenty of things that could threaten my relationship with God. And let's face it, human relationships, they do break down. So many human relationships that seem secure today, they fall apart over the years because of unfaithfulness, weariness, love evaporating. What makes this relationship with God any different? But it is different. This relationship is secure. It says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. These verses list some possible threats to this relationship with God. So verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Now those are seven pretty serious threats, aren't they? Persecution for your faith. Famine. Danger. I mean, we tend not to face threats that serious, but Paul did. This was his experience. This was his world. In verse 35, he quotes an Old Testament text to show that these things are to be expected. This is normal for the believer. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So for Paul, as for so many believers down the ages and uh, around the world today, to follow Christ was to risk death. But can any of these threats separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you're crossing a busy road with a young child, you don't just hold hands, or at least I hope you don't just hold hands, you grab them by the wrist. And then even if their grip is weak, you've got hold of them. You're not going to let go. Well, in Christ, God has got hold of us, and no one and nothing is stronger than him. So nothing can break his grip on us, which is very reassuring. Can you think of anything that could do that, that could break God's grip? I mean, Paul lists 10 more things. Verse 38, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That covers all the bases, doesn't it? I mean, in marriage, you vow till death us do part. But not even death, not even death can separate us from God's love. In fact, with the Lord, the wedding comes after we die. Well, tomorrow a new year begins, and so much is uncertain. Who knows what will happen in 2024, in the world, in our own lives? And with so much misinformation, so much fake news, it feels like it's very hard now to be sure of anything anymore. But if we are in Christ, here are three rock-solid, cast-iron, watertight certainties. Nothing can stop God's good purpose for us. No one can condemn us if God is for us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as the the fireworks go off this evening, that's something to celebrate, isn't it? Something to crack open the champagne for. Wonderful certainties in an uncertain world. And if you're not yet a Christian, these certainties can be yours too. So in an uncertain world, Jesus urges us to come to him and to build our lives on him, the rock. 
Whoever comes to Christ, he will never turn away. Let's pause to reflect on what we've heard, and then we're going to join in prayer together.